It's been called the worst persecution of Christians in the church's 2,000-year history, and it's happening right now across the Middle East. Join us today as we discuss the tragedy currently unfolding in the Middle East with special guest George Marlin, chairman of Aid to the Church in Need USA and author of the book Christian Persecutions in the Middle East, a 21st century tragedy. I'm Michael Hernan, Vice President of Advancement at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, and you're watching Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us. Welcome to Franciscan University Presents. Uh, today we'll be talking about the persecution of Christians in the Middle East. I'm your host, Michael Hernan, Vice President of Advancement here at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio. I'm joined in our studios with our regular panelist, Dr. Regis Martin, uh, Professor of Systematic Theology here at the University, uh, and Dr. Scott Hahn, who holds the Father Michael Scanlon Chair in Biblical Theology and the New Evangelization, again here at Franciscan University. And we're pleased to welcome George Marlin. Uh, George is the uh, chairman of the Aid to the Church in the USA, uh, Aid to the Church in Need uh, USA. USA. Uh, you've had a long time career in uh, public life, in uh, the executive director and, and CEO of the Port Authority uh, in New York. Uh, you've been a, a investment banker. Uh, you're a prolific author, uh, writing uh, for dozens of publications, uh, New York Times, Washington Post, uh, and, and the rest. Uh, you're the author of 11 different books, including The American Catholic Voter, The Quotable Chesterton, uh, which, is, which is wonderful, and the book we'll be discussing today, uh, the, the Christian Persecutions in the Middle East, A 21st Century Tragedy. Uh, so thank you and welcome to the program. Well, thanks for having me. Um, so we're going to be talking about the uh, persecution of Christians in the Middle East. Uh, so there's a lot to, to cover here, but I think it's important to kind of set the stage and the context uh, for us before we go uh, deeper into the persecutions. Um, is there a place in the world with richer Christian heritage uh, than the Middle East? So we're talking about the Middle East, so let's start, let's start there. Well, I think it's fair to say there is no richer place. You know, it, it's interesting, I spent 17 years in the Catholic educational system and undergraduate degree in political science and Thomistic philosophy, but again, that education was very European-centric, yes. and we forget that the church originated really the first headquarters of the church before Rome was Syria. And about a year and a half ago, uh, we had as a guest here in the United States, Aid of the Church Need hosted the Melkite uh, Archbishop Metropolitan of Aleppo, and uh, hmm. we, we did a various television shows. We had them through Boston, New York, and Washington. But one day we were having lunch with Cardinal Dolan of New York, and uh, he and the Archbishop Jean Bart of Aleppo were going to do a radio, serious radio show, television show afterwards. So as we were waiting in the anteroom to have lunch with the Cardinal, uh, Archbishop Jean Bart got a call from Aleppo being told that his residence, his cathedral, and his office administration building were bombed again. Mm. And again, this was a year and a half ago, and we know it's gotten a lot worse since then. But during lunch, this came up as a topic of discussion. And he looked at us and said, let me remind you, I walk in the footsteps of the apostles. I walk in the footsteps of St. Peter. I am 76 years old. I am not going to leave Aleppo. I will die in Aleppo. And so it struck me then that, yes, there was the first headquarters of the church in Syria. 
the, the, the term Christ, Christian and Christianity was coined in Syria. So yes, the, we have the Church of the Martyrs there. We have 2,000 years of history there. So indeed, that area in the Middle East as a whole was really the it origins was the of Christian, the Church. It was the Church. It was the birthplace, birthplace uh, of, of Christianity. Church. And, well, and when you think about, uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, just an extraordinary man, the story that you've recounted. I mean, Aleppo, the most dangerous place on the planet. It's ground zero uh, in this war uh, on terror, and we're losing it. And yet there's the matrix where Christianity first emerged. Yeah. We've come full circle. Absolutely. Astonishing. Yeah. Absolutely. And if you, if you think about the Middle East, I, I, I do think that, that at least Catholics in America and the, the, the Western world often think of the, the, the Christianity of, of uh, the Middle Ages, of the, the high you know, uh, forms of the church, and we, we do forget where our birth was from. Uh, what happened in the seventh century uh, that, that changed the Middle East? Well, well that's the interesting thing. People forget that we've been there for 2,000 years. We were there long before the Muslims arrived on the scene. So I think, to put it in a historical nutshell, with, in a nutshell, with the rise of Islam, uh, particularly if, shortly after the death of Muhammad, the founder, you had you know, religious wars going on. Yeah. And so in the early days, in 6th, 7th, 8th century, the Muslims began to conquer the Middle East because the old Persian and Byzantine empires were beginning to collapse. They were fighting, and they were at one of the throats for centuries. You had the various schisms within the Catholic Church, so the Eastern Rites came about and over disagreements of, you know, a sentence here and a half phrase there. It's, it's you know, when you look at the history of that, you say, how did, how did that happen? But yeah. it did happen. So you had this chaos. So the Muslims began to conquer the, the, the Middle East, but the Christians were still a vast majority. So even though there were jihads, and even though there were, you know, killing, you know, putting the Crusades aside for the moment, uh, there were accommodations like anything else. Yes. And so when the Christians were majority, they sort of lived side by side as the Muslims became the majority. There was, you know, the Christians were second-rate citizens, sure. had to pay taxes. You know, in some areas they were allowed to own a horse because you know, if you have a horse, you'd be dangerous. You know, you <laughs> of course. Battle. But Christians also provided. You know, they tended to be the better educated. They provided a lot of services. But more important, as trading began with Europe, uh, they were sort of the conduit between Christian Europe and Muslim Middle East. So there were accommodations. It was not a perfect world but they were sort of, for the most part, left alone, even though they were second-class citizens. They were called, they were considered, as, as Muhammad said, uh, you know, members of the book, meaning the Bible they accepted, but that was, you know, that was not the final word, and the Quran was the final word, so they were imperfect. But, you know, they respected Christ, they respected Jews, but said they're imperfect, so we charge them a tax for <laughs> being segregated. Well, not just a tax, but a punitive <laughs> Punitive, punitive tax. tax, yes. yes. Okay. Not and that the, they would charge us And brother. Jews and Christians, as people of the book, you know, were, it wasn't as though they accepted the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament. Yeah. They saw those as corrupted. Yeah. So it wasn't Incomplete. simply that Muhammad was the last prophet whose revelation was definitive, is that the message of Jesus being divine was wrong, being the son of God was wrong, being crucified was wrong. You know, so the Injil, the gospel was itself completely perverted early. And sure. so, I mean, it, it's one of those things where they emphasize the respect that they have shown to the people of the book. But I mean, if that's respect, don't show me disrespect, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So when, when, when Christianity was in majority, they 
they were able to coexist. Well, and, well, they, you know, they, they ran, they, in effect, they ran the government, they ran the place, but when you're in the minority and the majority, you got to accommodate for a while. That's right. So that's you right. become that's the majority. Right. <laughs> but through diplomacy and charity, they were able to navigate. Well, uh, but I mean, I in, in the practical. The charity. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to live is to maneuver, as, as Whitaker Chambers uh, famously said. And in the practical order, people make adjustments, accommodations. But implicit in the religion of Islam uh, is a foreign policy, basically fiercely hostile to everything Christian. I mean, they are determined to wipe us out. Uh, and so we shouldn't be surprised uh, at what's happening uh, in the Middle East, yeah. uh, this tragic uh, denouement. This is, what, this is what the Arab Spring uh, was all about, finally. Yeah, when, you, when you think about it, so just taking us back from uh, the seventh century when things, some trouble began brewing uh, in the Middle East for, for Christians. Fast forward to today. Um, well, we, we should touch on the Crusades for two seconds, okay. I think, because at least, as you may recall, <laughs> as you may recall President Obama at the uh, National Prayer Service was about a year or so ago, and he said, well, you know, you Christians who, we Christians who think we're holier than now, remember the Crusades when we, you know, we went in there and murdered a lot of people and all that stuff. But, you know, when I wrote my book, I had went back and reread a lot of Bernard Lewis, who I think we agree is the yeah. leading expert who turned 100 not too long ago, and I gather is still kicking and has all his marbles. But he wrote about the Crusades, quote, they were a long delayed Christian response to the Jihad, an attempt to recover by holy war what had been lost by holy war. Yeah. Yeah. Now that's yeah. Bernard Lewis, quote unquote. So yes, yeah. I will agree that when you have hand-to-hand -hand combat of Christians versus Muslims at that time it was pretty brutal. Right. And war like that was brutal. But then again, if you're on the receiving end of a drone bomb, that's pretty brutal, too. Yeah. yeah. You know, there's right. something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's a total eclipse of the truth here with regard to the Crusades, largely due to the brilliant writing of Professor Runciman, yeah. who back in the 50s had this multi-volume set come out on the Crusades. Now, if it had been published- There's a very fancy fiction, edition from the folio right. press right. that still is out there. I have that too. <laughs> if, if it had been published as fiction, it would have been marvelous. But to call that history, you know, is, right. is um, borderline farcical, but because his writing style is so brilliant, it was so effective at completely converting uh, at least one, probably two generations of historians now to see the Crusades as a, a massive injustice that we should never stop apologizing for when in fact it was a just war at least, if not a holy war. That's right. And a war of defense, a war of recla reclamation uh, of, of hundreds of thousands of Christian women and children and men who had been enslaved. Uh, and, and slaughtered and this sort of thing. And so, you know, I know we have to proceed delicately, but I hope we proceed forthwith to really recover what, what the truth what, what is. What truth? Yes. What books would you recommend on the well, Crusades? We did a whole show reading. actually on the Crusades. Well, yeah. you know, we just lost one of the greatest Catholic historians of the Crusades, Jonathan Riley Smith. Okay. But anything that Jonathan Riley Smith has written is good. Thomas Madden at yeah. St. Louis yeah. also. Thomas Madden also, okay. Because yeah. Ignatius republished one of Riley's books. So right, yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, we live, we live in very strange times because on the one hand, we have uh, militant Islam on the march, uh, this appetite for conquest, this juggernaut, which doesn't appear to be stoppable. But on the other hand, we've got a lot of self-hating Christians who make constant excuses for the so-called excesses of the Crusades. Well, We've got to overcome you, that false at, yeah. dialectic. Again, going back to Bernard Lewis, his argument was that when the British and the French were trustees, so to speak, after the First World War. 
as opposed to the British in, in India, where they had control and created an administrative state yeah. and cre created a government that could be adaptable. And why India worked, as trustees, they didn't do any of that. And so he would argue that when we pulled out, or the French and the, and the English pulled out after the Second World War, there was nothing left of a structure there, and that sort of asked for trouble. And, right. and we've seen this brewing for the past 40 or 50 years. But uh, you know, you're right. Now we have the militants taking over, be it the, the, Muslim, you know, the Muslim Brothers, the Al Qaeda, the, the now the ISIS. This sort of militantism, to me, is very different than what we. You know, as, 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 as Secretary of State Kerry made a point a year or so ago, saying, "Well." people like ISIS, people just don't operate like that in the 21st century. Like, right. I don't know what the 20th, every, you know, Obama and Kerry, this is the 21st century. You know, what does that right. mean? Right. I don't know. Right. But yeah. having said that, he said, people don't act the way they did in the 19th century. And I first said, no, not the 19th century, Mr. Secretary. They're acting like they did in the 7th and 8th century. But then when you think about 7th and 8th century, it's not as bad as what they're doing today because right. they really want to wipe Christianity off the face of the earth of the Middle East. So you're right, this militantism is very different from what uh, Christians have experienced in the, in the, in the, in the, in the, in the Middle East yeah. over a thousand years. You, you know, you, you also touched on, the, these were the remarks that you made last night that were very moving, but you touched on the forgetfulness of, of, of history. And you made the point about uh, the genocide of the uh, Armenians, and you quoted Hitler who yes. said, uh, you know, people have already forgotten about that, so we can proceed with impunity no. against Jews. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And in fact, we have forgotten. It's just not on the radar. So how do you revive well, what that is, memory? What is more amazing is that the Turkish government, if anyone dares to refer to that as a genocide, as, as you all know, when Pope Francis right. condemned the genocide, they yanked out the ambassador from uh, the, 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 the Turkish state. ambassador to the Vatican. But even in the United States, where there have been measures in Congress to try to condemn it as genocide, and I was told by the Armenian ambassador to the Vatican that President Obama had promised to condemn the genocide, and he and the, the ambassador, the Armenians, you know, have a short fuse, and this guy was an angry man that the White House did not do that during 2015. Mm. So even in the United States, our national government is afraid to refer to that as genocide. I don't get it, no. you know, but in Turkey, if you dare speak out, it's over. Right. You know? well, there, right. there is a You're certain, never seen again. There is a certain sense in which genocide is the most appropriate term because of its connotation and its linkage to Hitler and the final solution against the Jews that he concocted. On the other hand, not to defend their perspective, but in a certain sense, it's not really targeting Armenians because they're Armenians. It was targeting Armenians because they were Christians. Yes. And so strictly speaking, it wasn't genocide so much as the very onset, the, 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 the reintroduction of jihad. Well, within the definition of the UN conventions right. of genocide, That's they right. mention religious, sex, race, and yeah. religion, if yeah. you are sought out psychologically, murdered, right. etc. So under the UN, it is genocide right. by their right. own definition. And so when we look, uh, looking forward, we've got ISIS, we have the Muslim Brotherhood, we have this radical rise. I mean, it, they have so much today that is confronting Christians in the Middle East. It's, it's actually unbelievable. And it's still not being called what it truly is. Well, if you remember, and the picture on the cover of the book of, of the uh, ISIS chopping off the heads of the Coptic Christian, when Josh Ernest, the president's spokesman of the White House, was asked about this, he said the following. 
we are sorry that those Egyptian citizens were murdered. Now, they were Egyptian citizens. They were not murdered because they were Egyptian citizens. They were murdered because they were Egyptian Christians. So they couldn't, they couldn't bring themselves for that word to pop out of their mouth. Yeah. And it you know, refers to what you sort of, they're saying, you know, the Armenians. Well, yeah. that was, Forgetting you know, it. This is right out of Orwell. <laughs> we have so much more to get to. Stay with us for the next segment of Franciscan University Presents. Within Islam today, there are two really varied interpretations of Christianity. The more moderate voice, which is in some ways the majority voice, focuses on the common intellectual heritage, on biblical figures, and even on Jesus and Mary and their importance of faith today. The more radical interpretation, though, focuses on the parts of the Quran that talk about the use of violence to expand the religion, uh, focuses on the life of Muhammad, who actually used violence himself, leading raids on opposing communities as a way of expanding uh, the faith. Uh, but we can base our ties on the more moderate interpretation of Islam and the common heritage of acknowledging Jesus. And moderates will join with us in accepting his importance as a prophetic figure, as a miracle worker. But the radicals will always disagree with us fundamentally and see us as heretical because of our interpretation of him having a divine nature. People recognize Franciscan University as being academically excellent and passionately Catholic. We have the unique opportunity through our faculty members, through our students, to proclaim that academic excellence by reaching out in many different ways. We also remain passionately Catholic in the way in which we are able to worship, the way in which we are able to bring that love of Christ to others on a daily basis. It's important for us to be able to embrace both. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. We've been talking about the persecution of Christians in the Middle East. Uh, we're joined by our special guest, George Marlin, who's the author of this book, uh, Christian Persecutions in the Middle East, a 21st Century Tragedy. Um, George, we've kind of set the historical context of where we've been, the reality of, of genocide and um, uh, the targeting of Christians uh, and how they're being driven out uh, of the Middle East. Uh, we left the last segment uh, talking about ISIS, or beginning to talk about ISIS, um, and even their imitators or other collaborators. Um, where are they having the most success? Where are they having the greatest impact uh, in the Middle East? Well, obviously in Syria and Iraq in particular, but I think some setting. As I mentioned earlier, when the British and French pulled out, there was not states viable states. Right. Now, theoretically, we could say viable states evolved over time, but this Wilsonian view of foreign policy that we are to bring democracy and that saves the world, what we've learned is that you can have a, an election and you can elect illiberals to run a government. And that's exactly what we saw in the aftermath of the Arab Spring. But in addition to the chaos by the United States completely pulling out of Iraq, it brought to a rise of an offshoot of al-Qaeda, which is more radical than al-Qaeda, and al-Qaeda is pretty radical to start off with, uh, ISIS, who declared a caliphate and just started conquering lands. And what we've seen is, even though there are now battles and they are losing, they may be losing a great deal of their property at this point in time, uh, it's what they've left in the mess, particularly in Syria. You have a civil war. Nobody knows exactly who the good guys are, yeah. uh, except the, the 
to me, on the Muslim side, even though they're battling uh, Assad and there's all sorts of factions and groups going, ISIS grows out of this, who was caught in the middle of the Christians. Yeah. Now, the Christians were viewed, particularly in the better part of the 20th century in the post-World War II era, as sort of agents of the West. They were the most educated. And keep in mind, throughout the Middle East, particularly in Syria and Iraq and even in Egypt, uh, you know, most of the orphanages, most of the hospitals, most of the social services are run by Christians. These Christians, many are educated in Europe. They're well educated. They had publishing houses. They ran newspapers. And again, there was these sort of uneasy accommodations, but uh, they introduced a lot of social uh, services to the Middle East. But they were viewed as agents of the West because, you know, we think of the West as Christianity, of Christendom, right. and many of them are educated in Europe. So they were looked upon with suspicion. So when you have all these outbreaks, they're caught in the middle as the bad guys. Right. So we have ISIS, who is not only gaining great tracts of land, but uh, their intent in wiping out the face of Christianity from the Middle East. Now, a couple of things which your, your listeners should know is that, you know, we know that as there's close to half a million people have been killed there so far. Yeah. We know that 10 million people have lost their homes. But what a lot of people may not know is that 2.4 million children, many of them Christians, can't go to school anymore. Hmm. There's over 15,000 children that have been murdered in the Civil War. Right. Over 600 medical people have been killed, doctors, nurses, nuns, uh, in the medical services. 83% of the electrical grids don't work. So hmm. they're li literally living in the dark. 1.2 million people have settled in Lebanon. Lebanon's population has gone up by 50%, basically refugees. 1.6 million have settled in Turkey. Genocide is beginning committed against Christians, even the United States on a quiet afternoon. Kerry came out and said, yes, there is genocide in the Middle East, thank you, and they ran off to the side. And what we don't hear about also, and what's happening with ISIS, is they are taking Christian girls, kidnapping them, raping them, murdering them, selling them into slavery, forcing them to convert and marry ISIS members. Uh, this is happening to tens of thousands of Christian girls. You know, where's the outrage? Where's the feminists? That's where's the ranting and raving? Where's mm -hmm. the banging of the pots and pans? Nothing in the West. So this is the kind of stuff you never hear of. You don't yeah. read about in the New York Times, sad to say. So uh, they're just, the Christians have been caught in the middle. And when you sit down and meet many of the, as I've had opportunities to meet many of the Syrian bishops in particular, and some of the Iraq bishops, these are the stories they tell you. And what I try to do in this book is, we have at Aid of the Church Need, we do a lot of work there, but we also have people on the ground and they're reporting stuff to us. Yeah. So I know this book came out last year, so it's already dated in the sense of, you know, but there's horror stories of there of the first 15 years of the 20th century, 21st century. And obviously the horror stories have continued since then. Right. So this is a sub, for whatever reasons, the West just doesn't want to talk about. Yeah. So we try to get these stories out there particularly to let you know, people know in, in the Christian world, the Western world, what's going on and what we can do to help them. Yeah. So these are the unknown stories and there's so many unsung heroes and so many martyrs in the Middle East, but sad to say, the West has had its head in the sand, doesn't want to talk about it. Well, it, it's inconvenient, it's uncomfortable, uh, but it still defies logic why we haven't heard all these stories. Or I, why I hope it's not across the board. I mean, we're familiar with the phenomenon of selective indignation, and, and it does apply with a broad brush to the liberal mindset. I mean, that's the zeitgeist the spirit of the age, it's, it's steeped in secularism and a kind of historical forgetfulness. But what about Catholics? 
Uh, I mean, you, you must be talking to lots of bishops. Uh, can they be mobilized? Oh, oh yeah, well, yeah. Uh, a lot's being done. One thing I should point out is the, the, you know, the UN will say, well, we are doing great humanitarian aid and supplying humanitarian aid to the refugee camps in Syria and Iraq. The problem is there are no Christians in those, in those refugee camps because Christians are afraid to go there because they're afraid they'll be beat up or murdered uh, by Muslims. So it's been the institutional church that has had to provide the, so, you know, on the Catholic end, you know, aid of the church in need, Catholic uh, Near East, the, the Knights of Columbus and other groups have been supplying directly by way of the institutional church uh, all sorts of humanitarian aid, et cetera. Now we can get into that in a little bit. But again, we've been doing our work with the Catholic Church, others have been doing with the church. Uh, Cardinal Dolan, uh, we had one of the patriarchs was over from the Middle East in June and uh, Cardinal Dolan had a dinner at his residence and I was, I was happy to be invited. When I came in, he had been to the Middle East a month or so earlier, and he said, I couldn't leave all the ACN signs wherever I went and all these camps and all these refu Christian refugee camps. So Christians are going to the churches. The churches are packed, people sleeping in there. We've tried, and others have sent the money to set up, you know, Quonset huts to, to set up schools, to set up medical facilities, mm -hmm. to give humanitarian basic staples, to bring in any counseling help they can bring to, to finance uh, medical services, et cetera. So the institutional church is doing that separately because when they're not getting the UN aid. Right. So when you say, I haven't agree with you, we should be beating the pots and pans a lot more to get this message out. Uh, but you know, if it were not for the church and various church organizations, it would be far worse. It's not enough, it's far from enough, it's not talked about enough. And you know, we try to get these stories out if you go to our website, you'll see every, every time we get new information, we put it up there because no one believes what's going on. No, it really is unbelievable. And it's selective indignation. But, you know, to think or to say that Islamophobia is the primary problem is selective blindness. Uh, there's a Christophobia that is pervasive in our own culture where there's a fear of Christianity being brought up as though you know, oh, we're gonna privilege this religion that we have discarded. I was just recently with the Chaldean Rite Bishop Francis up in Michigan, and uh, we were talking at some length about, uh, about the situation, the plight, and, and he had to be very cautious. I mean, he's outspoken, he's clear-headed, he's profound, he's, he's really connected to the people, but he also pointed out that there's a certain degree of prudence because there are a lot of people left behind still in Iraq. I mean, not many. I mean, we're not talking hundreds of thousands, we're talking about thousands or at the most tens of thousands, but anything that is publicly heard or said, you know, is going to rent back. They're, they're going to be vulnerable. Yeah. Uh, and Mosul and other cities, but especially Mosul, has uh, just been wiped out. I mean, this was a, a kind of um, a bastion of Catholic Christian civilization and culture yeah. going back nearly 2,000 years. And it's, I mean, we don't know for sure if there's any Christian presence left there. No churches, monasteries, there schools, no, hospitals. No, the bishop, I, I forget what right, but Bishop Nooner, I think his name was, announced, I have no diocese. There's nobody left in my diocese. Right. Most so there's no, they've destroyed every church. There is not a Christian left. Right. Yeah. It's over. Yeah. And Archbishop John Bott of Aleppo, uh, we raised this money for him. What he's wanted to do, we, we had a good trip, we raised about a million bucks for him. We put in money, KSC, and then the uh, various communities, Syrian community, helped out. 
But his objective for this money was to try to get people to stay or come back. If you're a carpenter, I'll give you money to buy you tools. If you're a dentist, I'll give you money to buy you a dentist chair or your medical facility. Hmm. He, he is trying to bring them back because the great fear is no one will ever go back and there'll be nothing there. That's unbelievable. That's right. it, it, this is incomprehensible, really. Uh, what was the point of the intervention of, uh, into uh, Iraq? Uh, just to topple Saddam Hussein, who at least allowed the Christians to thrive. He wasn't killing them. Well, he left them alone, and even Assad in Syria, the, uh, the Syrian priests will argue, he left us alone. It was tolerance, at yeah. least, on right. some level. When you have a secular Sunni dictator right. who has in Iraq, like Hussein did, you know, a minority of Sunnis who in a sense ruled the Shiites and allowed Christianity to flourish and even had a Catholic in his, in his cabinet, uh, to go in and to wipe that out and to create a vacuum that ISIS basically fills, you know, the only th explanation is the oil fields. Yeah. But I mean, it's such a short-sighted thing that yeah, we're well, blind to Christian history. If we look at the, the, the tragedy that's happening to the Christians themselves, we also just recognize the historical significance of what's being stamped out. Um, what, what is happening to the, the Christian patrimony that we have, the, well, art, it's, the it's, architecture? It's, that what is, what is different than any other time in history is that ISIS is looking to destroy the institutional church, the cathedrals, the churches, the ancient monasteries, the ancient sites, the, the tomb of Jonah was destroyed, the ancient documents, all of that's being destroyed. And so they are wiping out any trace of Christianity. Mm. So that, that's the other part of the madness that's going on there. And once again, there is no outrage. Now, if you remember, when we, we our invading forces conquered Iraq, there was a great fuss in the press because some of the you know, citizenry went to rioting and destroyed a couple of museums and this and that. You thought the end of the world was coming. You know, mm -hmm. They were blaming us like, why aren't you controlling us? Uh, yeah. Yeah. You're allowed to raise an eyebrow on that and say, why aren't you controlling that? But troops come in, fine, they took care of it. But you've heard nothing about right, that right, yeah. with the destruction of the Christian sites, Christian relics, Christian, Christian cathedrals, etc. You know, it, it's one thing to expel the Christians. They take flight out of fear, and then Christianity becomes a kind of museum piece. But this is worse. Oh, Paul it's been call reduced it, to Paul a Paul the call it the Church of Stones. Yeah. And, and the stones are scattered. Church, it's going to be a church of rubble uh, yeah. before, before. Nothing before. left. But it, it's, it's worth noting, again, when I was, came across it, I was doing research for this book, even during the American occupation, uh, several thousand Christians were murdered. Uh, the, the Muslims are most suspicious because they always thought they were agents of the West to start off with. Right. So if the American troops, the American occupying force hired uh, Iraqi Christians to, you know, to work, do whatever work, they were generally, their homes were destroyed, they could be murdered, their hands could be chopped off. If, if American soldiers went to a Christian store or a restaurant or something, they'd yeah. come at night, destroy the restaurant, chop off the hands of many of the Christians, or just gouge out their eyes, or just you know, blow them away. Mm. So even during our occupation, thousands of Christians were murdered. In addition to that, the Constitution was skewed against Christians, and no one sort of thought this out. Right. Mm -hmm. And yep. so there was no, they, there were free elections, but you know, Christians ran, but there were one, a very tiny, tiny minority were elected some legislative posts, and then the second elections, they were pretty much wiped out in terms of the election. So it was skewed towards the Muslims, so the Christians were basically locked out. 
So there was no thought process on our side to protect the Christian minority or other minorities in Iraq. So it sort of got lost. And now right, with right. the void of us leaving, it was even tougher on the Christians because now you could say, by the way, you were agents of the West. They're gone now, so we're going to go after you. So, you know, scores of churches, monasteries also in Iraq have been destroyed. And always when you look at it, even before, if you look even from 2000 to 2011, as I do in the book, always around Easter, Christmas. It could be Egypt, it could be Iran, it could be Iraq, it could be Egypt, uh, Syria. Churches get bombed, always around Christmas and Easter. Yeah, yeah. Uh, stay with us for the next segment of Franciscan University Presents. So Christian persecution does not only take place in the form that we are observing in the Middle East, Christian persecution can also be quite subtle. It generally tends to take place in countries that have embraced socialism. I experienced this directly in the island of Malta in the late 70s, early 80s, where the government, the socialist government, was attacking the church directly in a country that prides itself in being 95 to 98% Catholic. From my observations, what I see is that this kind of uh, persecution tends to take place in places where people embrace egoism, where people have an apathy towards their faith, and also where people have a significant misunderstanding of the true meaning of freedom as well as the role of the government. I'm a communication arts major, the president of Film Club, and an editor for Franciscan University Presents. It's really great to be able to work on Franciscan University Presents because it is a national television show on EWTN, and in a lot of other schools you're not going to have that kind of ability to put that on a resume. When I graduate, I know that I'm going to, to be firm in sticking with my faith and you know going to daily mass and a frequent confession and things like that, because instead of just learning with my mind or just focusing on schoolwork, I, I actually you know, can grow with my whole person. Franciscan University is academically excellent and passionately Catholic. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. This entire program springs forth from the very heart of Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio. Our students are operating the cameras and equipment. Uh, they're in the control rooms. Uh, this is in the communication arts studio here on campus. And our, our regular panelists are theology professors here at Franciscan University. Uh, George, we've been uh, obviously going through uh, a substantial amount of what I would say is very tragic and, and dire news about our brothers uh, and sisters in the Middle East, their persecution, their torture, their exile, um, and the, the very birthplace of Christianity is being stomped out in a lot of ways. Um, why is it important, why is it essential for the Middle East uh, that the Christian community survives? Well. In the age of diversity, to have some diversity in the Middle East, I suppose, wouldn't be a bad thing. In addition to that, Christianity has historically provided a great deal of the social services that otherwise did not exist in the Middle East. Yes. So those are important. But then there is a broader question here of, it was the birth of Christianity. We've been there for 2,000 years. It's interesting in Lebanon, uh, where you have Christians versus Hamas and Hamas and Christians are sort of battling together, going after ISIS when they try to sneak over the border a bit. Hmm. But the claim is this is our historical lands. Yeah. Our family, we could yeah. trace generations of families going back a thousand, two thousand years, and you know, we have as much right to be here as 
Islam has to be here. So that's the historical perspective, I think. All right. Well, yeah. more right, to, actually, because yeah. we were there first. Yeah, we were there yeah, first. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but also, I mean, there is something about Christianity that, that provides openness for the other, a certain tolerance, yes. respect for the dignity of other people, even people that you violently disagree with, you're not going to cut their heads off. Uh, you might preach to them, maybe quote uh, you know, John 6 ab about uh, the bread of life, but you're not going to shoot them. Uh, right. Unlike uh, the antithesis, Islam, which is bent on complete destruction of, of the other. So Christians have got to be restored to the Middle East if you want anything viable to survive. Right, right. But I think we have to see the need to develop a realistic approach that isn't just simply saying, look, our secular pluralistic toleration is a better program because yeah. they would see that as an alien value. That is exactly what we call Western decadence. Yeah. And I think what we have to recognize is that religion has a capacity to form a civilization. We don't recognize that in our secularized post-Christian West. Yeah. They see that, History, you know, historians will show that. So we have to approach this not only as Americans who want to emphasize the need for toleration, right. but as Christians who recognize the need for prayer and for devotion. And we have a lot to learn from the way Muslims take their faith so seriously. I must admit, I really enjoyed this book. Oh, and you. <laughs> you know, the, the facts, um, the statistics. But my favorite part is actually chapter 11, the round table, where you have two archbishops and two bishops and two priests, all of whom are indigenous voices, who know this from Egypt right. or from Syria and Iraq and so on. And, and to hear them describe the problem, I mean, they are exerting themselves in terms of diplomatic self-restraint. And yet at the same time, one of them says, there is no moderate Islam. There's Islam, there's Christianity, and there's Judaism. And well, I know what he was trying to say, that Islam's founder, Muhammad, was a great warrior. Within eight years after his death, there were 50 or 60 battles that conquered entire people groups and that kind of thing. But I think we have to recognize from the long haul, we have to, we have to look at this as Christians and say, we have short-term solutions as Americans in the West, but as Christians, we've got to go there and shore up the Christian communities that are still there yeah. and do everything we can. And I know that aid in the church in need is in existence for that purpose. And so you know, I just wanna thank you for that, but also encourage our listeners or our viewers to back this sort of effort. I mean, it was a simple little thing, but Christians. just we need to recognize that, 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 that the birthplace of Christianity is under threat right now. And that affects not only the people there, but Christianity, uh, I believe, is, is thoroughly under assault right now. Yeah. And you that's know, you, Christians you can, we need to recognize. I, I would place this on, on the plane of metaphysics. Certainly in the moral order, Christianity represents tolerance, yes. forbearance, right. openness to the other. But at the level of epistemology, Christianity represents truth and the capacity of man uh, under the impetus of grace to know the truth, to apprehend the truth, to understand it. God is truth, logos. And with Islam, you have the triumph of the will, an arbitrary will, a hateful will. Uh, it, it wrenches uh, uh, ethos out of logos. Uh, you know, it, reason and revelation do not stand together. They're not harmonized. And, and that 
wrenching, that dislocation has proven to be a disaster for great numbers of people. We're paying the price yeah. for those uh, errors. You know, there, there is again in that chapter 11 roundtable discussion, a lot of good conversation that I found evocative, uh, insightful, you know, because Judaism was a religion of, is a religion of, of holiness, of law, of wisdom. Christianity is a religion that fulfills that in terms of love, in terms of divine truth, the mystery of the Trinity revealed in the sacrifice of Jesus. But when you hear Allahu Akbar, it's not just simply God is great. When you look at it grammatically, what they're really saying is God is greater, Allah is greater, because Islam is a religion of power. And this is what you were just pointing to. It might seem like a religion of hatred from our perspective, but it's power. What is the greatest thing about God? Is it love or is it power? Right. And the superiority of Muslims, of Islam, of Allah, is exhibited precisely in terms of power. Yeah. And so this is why there are deaths, this is why there is destruction, because it is religion that celebrates the will of Allah exhibited in terms of a superior power. Until we really allow this uncomfortable truth to sink in, dialogue is going to remain superficial. And if that's the case, then the relationship you have to Allah is one of submission, servitude. Whereas in the Christian dispensation, it's a relationship of love, friendship, intimacy. I mean, God wants, wants to endear himself to us. So, so when we think about on the ground, uh, in the Middle East, what is the West doing, uh, good, bad, uh, to change the situation on the ground in the Middle East? Well, as, as I said earlier, the West appears to have its head in the sand. Yes. There are the immediate problems. Uh, as I mentioned last night, uh, one of the Syrian bishops came to see us in Brooklyn a couple of years ago, and he told us the horror stories now. This was about three years ago, so it was not as bad as it is today. It was bad, but gotten worse, let us say. But at the time I said to him, if you had a wish list, what's on top of your wish list right this moment? What do you need? What can we do for you? And he looked at me and said, I need a cheese making machine. <laughs> and I was like, huh? And a generator go, I said, I don't get it. A wish list this. Well, he said to me, I have, my flock is fleeing to Lebanon. Many can't get into Lebanon. There are mountains between Lebanon and Syria. They are living off the land in these mountains. It's winter. They have goats. We got to make cheese. It costs like 25 grand for the cheese making machine. We got that for them, the generator, et cetera. But the point is, this is the immediate need. Survival. Survival. Yeah, yeah that's right. And this need. is where the shepherds are. They're yeah. in the midst of their flock there. Yeah. Uh, and that's where they're supposed to be. And as the Archbishop Jean Bart said, I will die here. I will be here as a shepherd. So mm -hmm. now Aid of the Church and Need and other organizations, what we're providing, and if you go to the website of Aid of the Church and AC and USA.org, you'll see stories and things of what's there. But so we provide monthly food ration supplies. We, we supply fuel to shelter them, to warm them. We supported, uh, you know, bringing counseling to help those who have suffered from trauma. We assist families to vaccinate their children, paying for these medical services. We meet the basic food needs. We've set up Quonset huts and other things, which for schools for these kids, for medical facilities for these kids and their families. So you know, it's the church that's doing this, and these are the immediate needs. Then we have the West appeasing Islam, which is part of the major problem. Uh, as we look at what happened in France, it, it's made when you, if you remember when 
I think it's Charles Krauthammer who says that when, you, when somebody makes a faux pas in Washington, it means they're really telling the truth, <laughs> uh, got caught telling the truth. If you remember, Secretary of State Kerry condemned the, the, one of the, 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 the attack on the dance hall in, in France at that time, but said, well, you know, when it came to that newspaper, you know, one might understand, and he got caught in saying, one might understand why the Muslim reactors, they did, you know, crazy cartoons. He had to take that back but that's the mindset. Right. Now, the New York Times refused to publish those cartoons saying it would offend our Muslim readers in Brooklyn. First of all, the New York Times guys couldn't find Brooklyn if they liked to depend on it. And secondly, they don't know any Muslims in Brooklyn. But, <laughs> but when there was this ugly uh, caricature of Pope Benedict that came out shortly thereafter, they published it. And my reaction was, well, what about the Catholic readers in Brooklyn who might be offended? Right. That does not enter the, enter, nope. enter the it's conversation. It's not on their radar. Yeah, it's not on their radar. Yeah. So this appeasement, I don't know, if, I don't quite get it. it you know, is it fear? Because, you know, Arthur Schlesinger Sr. said the last acceptable uh, prejudice is anti-Catholicism. They're not afraid of us because we don't blow them up or throw bombs or shoot them on the street or kill their families. So is it out of fear? Otherwise, if it's not fear, I don't quite understand what it is that these people want to look the other way and rationalize everything that's going on. I don't get it. That is the troubling part. We don't you guys have, have any ideas? Because <laughs> I don't, all right? I've been watching this for years and just can't figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Chesterton has a great quip about people not knowing what they're doing because they don't know what they're undoing. We're dismantling an entire world and we don't know what we're doing because we don't know what we're undoing. And that, I think, is at the heart of the malaise. Uh, and liberalism is exhibit A when it comes to, to the virus, the sickness. But these people have to be disarmed. We, we, we can't take orders from them anymore. They have to be unplugged because their influence has been dreadful. You know, there's another maxim, too, that the, uh, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so if we look at what we're undoing and we recognize that the secularist agenda that the progressives are advancing really is not just non-Christian, but anti-Christian, not just post-Christian, but really an attempt to kind of uproot what's left of Christianity. Then I think you're going to understand a little better as to why they'll bend over backwards out of fear, mm. but also out of a kind of uncomprehending bewilderment. Uh, at the face of Islam, knowing that there is nothing they can really do to stop it. But let's just enjoy this because, you yeah. know, it makes the Christians, especially yeah. the Catholics. It, there's a kind of Munich uh, mentality, I, I think, right. which Churchill uh, was prophetic in Peace exposing. In we appease the crocodile because we hope he'll eat us last. Uh, and certainly in 1940, Ch Churchill stood alone against the fury of the Third Reich. And in a way, we're standing alone, the church against the fury of Islam because we're not getting much help from the U.S. government. They're blind. They've forgotten uh, what history uh, can teach. Mm. Mm. It is super troubling. And as we look at this, this horrific uh, tragedy and genocide and, and attack, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, it defies logic why they aren't sharing this, why this isn't front page news, why we're keeping up with all the different celebrities, and this goes unmentioned. The, the atrocities uh, against humanity, uh, against Christians, and against the destruction of our historical uh, roots uh, that live there. Well, if you look at parts of France and even parts of England, Birmingham, 
where the Muslim communities are really running the show legally and otherwise, yeah, where the yeah. cops are afraid to go in, and yeah. certainly communities in France like that. What, what the Muslims could not do by war, they may, conquering Europe, they may do peacefully by having lots of babies, because right, you know the right. natural, uh, somebody said to me, well, I'll put some numbers together, and said in 50 years from now, uh, if you are an Italian, Italian, an Italian, Italian Catholic, you will not have a brother, a sister, a cousin, or uncle, or aunt, because everybody else will be Muslim in the country. Right. So with the negative growth of what we'll call the old Europeans, uh, who aren't having any kids, where abortion is out of control, the Muslims have lots of babies, and they are peacefully becoming the major right. populations, right. becoming you know significant populations in many of the cities throughout Europe. Now, if they are peace, law-abiding people, and accept the basic rules of law and order of that given state, that's fine. But once they become a majority, already they're pushing that Sharia law should be come before the civil law. So these are going to become bigger issues as time goes by. So yeah. as the appeasement continues, right their strength and power grows. And again, once they grow powerfully at, in the ballot box, they tend to be a liberal if they win elections. So we've seen that in the Middle East. Will we see that in Europe over the next 50 years? Right, yeah. right. Stay with us for the final segment of Franciscan University Presents. I'm in the four plus one program here for counseling. It is very academically challenging, but the classes are a lot of fun. The teachers do love what they teach and they know their fields very well. If you're interested in mission, that's a big thing here. I did San Diego for two years. That was a youth ministry mission. There are a lot of opportunities here to be actively pro-life, praying outside the abortion clinic. There's a big group that goes to the March of Life here from campus. There's just so much you can do as far as faith goes. Franciscan University is academically excellent and passionately Catholic. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. This is our final segment talking about the persecution of Christians in the Middle East. Regis, could you start us off? Yeah, I, I've got to begin by thanking you, George, uh, so much for coming and for the work that you've done. Uh, as the kids would say, it's inspiring, awesome, absolutely awesome. We gave you that award uh, last night, the Il Poverello Award. I can't think of anyone who deserves it more, and it puts you in some pretty uh, good company. Yes, Dorothy indeed, Day, yeah. uh, Mother Teresa of Calcutta, a saint in heaven. Uh, so the, the road is open uh, for you to pursue <laughs> that same sanctity. I'm really struck by, by how bizarre and painfully bewildering circumstances uh, uh, are. I mean, on the one hand, the Obama people are doing nothing, but the people they replaced did the wrong thing. I mean, Elliot in uh, murder, in, murder in the Cathedral uh, fingers uh, the last temptation, which is the greatest treason to do the right thing for the wrong reason. All that neoconservative nonsense about exporting democracy uh, to these ignorant uh, 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 is Islamists, when in fact, democracy is the last thing they needed because once they got it, they mobilized their masses on behalf of jihad. What they need is Christianity. But how do we export that if we're ashamed of our faith, our heritage? And in the meantime, it's being liquidated by the enemy. You've got your work cut out for you, the church in need. And in a way, the church here is even more acutely in need. It needs nerve, some starch in the shirt, so that it has the moral intelligence to recognize the enemy and the will, the kidney, to summon to fight this enemy. Otherwise, we're going to lose. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Regis. Scott? 
Well, I would echo what Regis just said and thank you for this book. I have been recommending it to everybody. It's a wake-up call for Christians, generally, Catholics especially, because we've got that 2,000-year-old tradition that is so deeply embedded there in the Middle East. But really, it isn't just the Middle East where Christians are threatened. And so I'm reminded of uh, Proverbs 17, one of my favorite passages at the opening of that chapter, where we read about how a, a disciplined, diligent slave will rule over an insolent and slothful son. Uh, Islam is a religion of divine slavery. That is their own description of it, that the relationship that we have with Allah is a master-slave relation. We have a, a family bond, you know, a father-son relationship is at the heart of ours. But if the son doesn't outserve the slave from love, then we will be oppressed, as it were. We will be overrun. So this is a wake-up call, not only for long-term study and mobilization, not only for medium-term strategies, but also for short-term survival tactics. And this is where aid to the church in need is so vital, that support we give to them, to you, to, to give to those for, for the cheese-making machines, you know, that kind of thing. I really believe that this is a call to think in terms of the short, the long, you know, and everything in between. Uh, for us to wake up and to really take hold of our own faith and to allow Christ through the power of the Spirit to renew the church. Mm, amen. Thanks. George? Well, first of all, I, I've been delighted to be here in Steubenville uh, the last couple of days. I've heard a great deal of it over the years. I know many of your graduates, so I never realized what an incredible institution you have here from mm. the campus and everything else. So that was a delight, and of course, it was a great honor to accept that award last night on behalf of Aid of the Church in Need. What this charity attempts to do since it was founded in 1948 was to help starving and persecuted Christians, first on the dark side of the Iron Curtain, and since the fall of the Iron Curtain has expanded to uh, throughout the world, and obviously our focus has been on the Middle East. Right now, we have to deal, we can argue and argue and argue how we got in this mess, and I agree with you, the neoconservatives, many of whom I've known for years in New York, you know, had this dream of, Wilsonian dream of pushing democracy, and it just doesn't necessarily work. But the fact is, because of this mess, we have hundreds of thousands of Christians that are suffering, and our job, first of all, is to pray for them. Your listeners, I would hope, would go out and go to their bishops and say, why aren't we banging the pots and pans? Why aren't we hearing more of this about from the pulpit? I had, I had lunch uh, uh, back in May with the Australian ambassador to the Vatican, uh, Ambassador McCarthy, who just stepped down with the change of the government. He was doing a sort of return tour, and he is taking over as chairman of the Aid of the Church in Need operation in, in Australia. And he suggested to me that why don't we go back to, if you remember when we were young, not you, but you and me, <laughs> when at the end of Mass we had prayers for the conversion of Russia. Right. And he said, why don't we bring back an institutional chair prayer to be said after Mass for the persecuted Christians? I thought it was a great idea. Mm. Prayer is the first thing here, but after that we must deal with the practical reality of trying to help starving, suffering people. So, you know, the kind of projects we are funding there, we look at projects, we fund them, we get the money to the Middle East and all the humanitarian aid because if we as the church don't do it, no one else is going to do it. So, exactly where it's a lonely world, and you're right, we have to reinvigorate Catholics here to, to look at this as the universal church and do what we can in the Middle East. So your listeners out here, when they see the show, hopefully 
go to our website, take a look at it, but also drop a note in the mail to your bishop saying, why aren't we hearing more about this? Because right, yeah. the, the institutional church of the United States has to do a lot more in my judgment. Yeah. Well, thank you, George. Um, if you enjoyed today's program, uh, we have a handout for you uh, from the Age of the Church in Need, uh, the Christian persecution in the Middle East. Uh, this is a great primer. Um, I want to encourage you to both just go to Faith and Reason and download this um, or call us up and we'll send you a copy. Um, this is something you should give to your children, your grandchildren, your pastor, your bishop. Uh, this is a great uh, three, four page summary here of some of the atrocities and the reality of what we're facing in our world today. Um, when I think about the, the persecution of Christians, I, I, the, the first mind as I was, I was uh, thinking about this topic is the reality of, of uh, when Paul was persecuting the church. And Saul, Saul, Jesus said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Uh, Christ is being persecuted. Uh, we have to realize that as, as the Christians in the Middle East are being persecuted, it is the body of Christ. Uh, it, is, it is him being tortured. It is him uh, who is suffering. Uh, it is him who is being in exile and uh, they are our brothers and sisters. And uh, we need to, whether it be going on pilgrimage, whether it be in donating to the, the aid to the church in need, we need to recognize that they are our family and we have our first priority. If it's not us, as Georgia said, then who will take care of the church in the Middle East? And we've got to proclaim that truth uh, far and wide. Um, praying for them is essential, um, but we need to really go farther than that and say, what are you uh, convicted? It convicts me to say, what am I personally doing as well as what we as a university can do uh, to help the church uh, suffering, the church persecuted uh, in the Middle East? Uh, thank you for watching this program. I want to invite you to be a part of our mission here at Franciscan University. Uh, we believe we're educated, called to ev educate, evangelize, and send forth joyful disciples. I want to invite you to come and possibly get your degree here at Franciscan University or through our online programs. Maybe join us for one of our dynamic summer conferences or join with us as we travel around to the Holy Shrines through our pilgrimage office to the Holy Land and many other sites or to go to faithandreason.com to be equipped for the new evangelization with videos, talks, downloads from some of the great intellectual and spiritual leaders of our time. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. To download the free handout on today's topic, go to faithandreason.com. Email your request for the handout to presents at franciscan.edu. At faithandreason.com, you can also purchase past episodes of Franciscan University Presents or request today's free handout and purchase past programs by calling 888-333-0381. That's 888-333-0381 or call 740-283-6357.